Good afternoon. It's time for another episode of Spaces and Places, a podcast by Site 1001. If you're just joining us for the first time, each episode we feature expert guests on topics around buildings and all the things that make them work the way we want them to. I'm Lauren Long, Marketing Director at Site 1001, and sharing the mic with me is Site 1001's Director of Digital Design, Aaron Simon. Hello, Aaron. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for that introduction. How's it going? Going well today. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Starting to sleep a little less. The wife is pregnant, as many people know, and it's just keeping her up all night now. And it's, you know, we're just getting ready for when the baby is going to come. So excited for you. <laughs> I'm a little tired, but I'm going to keep the energy going. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think today's actually her birthday, too, is it not? Yes, it is. Yeah. Thank you for remembering. A busy woman. So today's guest is Bob Bennett. Bob is the principal and founder at B Squared Civic Solutions a smart cities consulting firm serving both commercial and public sectors. Before creating B-Squared, Bob was the well-recognized chief innovation officer of the city of Kansas City, Missouri, which, as I'm sure many of you know, was where Site101 was born. So, Bob, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It is uh, great to be with the Site101 team again. It's always a good time to hang out with y'all. <laughs> Let's start with you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you did in Kansas City and what you're up to these days. Sure. Did 25 years in the Army. And at the conclusion of that, I joined the administration of Mayor James as Chief Innovation Officer with a focus on building out our smart city strategy and then actually operationalizing it. We were very fortunate in the city to have an amazing array of partners. And we were able to generate what was at the time the smartest 54 blocks in the United States. And uh, that allowed us to then uh, begin looking at ways to continue to grow it. We now have a new mayor uh, in Kansas City uh, by the time that this particular broadcast airs. And so I left the city um, shortly after the first round of the elections. And now I'm uh, helping other mayors. I have four different mayors with whom uh, I'm doing the same types of things I used to do for Mayor James. And then I have three companies uh, that I'm consulting with where uh, I'm helping them either develop uh, products that are more uh, enticing to civic officials or the you know, particular uh, product development is more in line with city needs. So uh, being able to essentially transition uh, everything I did for Mayor James for a different array of personalities, but still in the space and still loving it. It sounds like you're busy. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, no, we, we, we don't let any, uh, any grass grow. No, no. <laughs> Not as busy as Aaron's about to be, though. I'm sure he'll figure that out. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Bob, I got to add that it's always easy to spot you in a crowd because of the stylish bow ties you often wear and you have so much energy and enthusiasm. You always make people excited about whatever you're talking about. So thank you. All, all we're doing is changing the entire dynamic of the 21st century. So what's what's not to be excited about? I mean, you guys have been doing it since day one when you created 101. That's just freaking cool. I got to agree with you there. <laughs> but let me get this started off by asking uh, you a question. So you, you said that Kansas City at the time had the smartest 54 blocks. So what constitutes like the smart block or a smart city to you? Well, for us, it was how does the city make a more efficient use of the very limited resources that we have to generate an impact that a 21st century citizen expects to see. In this case, uh, it was connectivity. 
Mayor James and the city manager, Troy Schulte, saw uh, the ability to connect uh, to the digital environment being equally critical to citizen expectation as were electrical connectivity, water connectivity, and transportation. And so we were able to take advantage of a transportation project and integrate a Wi-Fi uh, component to it. What that gave us was a Wi-Fi array that uh, spans all 54 of the blocks alongside of the streetcar. But then we realized, too, that that only um, addressed what that citizen expectation was. It didn't necessarily make us that much more efficient. So we added on top of that a data analysis component, wherein we started taking the additive value of the data we were able to collect from all of the Wi-Fi access points. Um, added that to data that we already had from traffic signals, uh, from other sensors that were already deployed by city uh, assets uh, throughout that corridor, and then added non-standard sort of data sets that cities all maintain. Things like permitting records or crime records or uh, air quality data that we get uh, because we are a Paris compliant city. So we have that data available to us. We have weather data that's available to us because we have two airports in the city. And by kludging all of that data together, uh, we came up with a much more holistic picture as to what was happening in our community. And with that, we were able to help drive um, essentially the standard decisions that have to get made in the city every day. Everything from where do we prioritize police uh, foot patrol coverage? How do we prioritize trash collection? Um, when do we start uh, fixing potholes based not on it's 2019, today we must be doing 12th Street, to it's 2019, we know that uh, weather, age, and traffic patterns tell us that 22nd Street is actually going to be more in need of repair. So we prioritize our efforts there. And uh, it made us much more efficient. Uh, it allowed us to, to be a better steward of our resources. And it allowed digital citizens to interact with the city at a digital level. And so in that regard, it made us smart. Wow. So it, it was really so many different perspectives, so many different sources of data to really create a whole interoperably intelligent city in your case. Yeah, and, and I think pretty much every city is getting to the point uh, where they're realizing the value of the data that they already have. Once that evolution takes place, um, smart cities are going to become ubiquitous, and that term in and of itself will hopefully die a horrible death, <laughs> uh, and we can get on with the business of simply making cities relevant for digital citizens. Speaking of that, do you think that's the biggest challenge, I guess, to becoming a smart community or a smart city, actually harnessing the power of all this data, or rather connecting it first and then being able to take advantage of it? From an operational perspective, yes. Certainly, once cities take advantage of that opportunity, they will have at their fingertips the tools required to be more efficient or to plan more effectively or to be more proactive uh, in the actions that they take with respect to policy. Uh, the bigger challenge uh, is probably inside City Hall and getting mm -hmm. city leaders, uh, particularly um, those subject matter experts inside all of the stovepipes that every city has, mm -hmm. public works, water, transportation, you name it, and being able to get those folks to embrace 
data as a tool in their array, as opposed to something that's challenging um, their authority. And getting past that mental block is probably the biggest shift that we have to get to. Yeah, you mentioned something about making products more enticing. So what do you do to overcome that mental block? Well, in the case of one company with which I'm working right now, I've tried to convince them in their marketing materials and in their uh, interaction with city leaders to stop focusing on the technology that they have. The simple fact is nobody cares about the shiny object in City Hall. That shiny object is going to do one of two things on a general basis from any city official's perspective. The first of which is it's going to cost them money. The second of which is it's going to be perceived as something that is a trial or a pilot type uh, opportunity that doesn't have relevance uh, across the long-term budget cycles that city leaders have to embrace. And uh, so I've taken their product and helped them to transform all of the literature around it to being focused upon the impact uh, that it has on City Hall. And in this particular case, it's how do you help a public works director understand that this technology is simply a way to make the uh, planners who lay out the schedules for three or four different activities within a city become so much more efficient that in an era where they are losing employees instead of gaining them, they're able to still achieve the same results with respect to numbers of miles covered on the streets or numbers of streetlights uh, that are serviced uh, by the individuals doing that work. So when I first um, asked you, Bob, to join us, it was because I had just read a recent New York Times article. Uh, it was titled, I'm an engineer and I'm not buying into smart cities. And I couldn't wait to get your thoughts about it. Within it, the author says that dumb cities might be better than smart cities and that we should refocus our attention and money on making the best of old ideas because technology has a short lifespan. And while we are willing to accept interruptions in daily internet and cell phone functionality, we probably won't be willing to accept or be as forgiving if those interruptions were in, like, say, our water system. Uh, well, I violently disagreed with um, <laughs> sort of the approach that they took in that particular article. Okay. Because I submit to you that there has never been, since ancient Rome, a dumb city. Cities have always been smart. And the attitude of an engineer to say that uh, technology is not a solution and, and cities should just stay in a place where the technology they use is relegated uh, to something 50 years past is small-minded at best and downright, um, downright counterproductive at worst. But having said that, I agree with them in that cities do need to focus on things that they do well. We do need to make sure that our water supply is safe, and we have to make sure that our water supply is regulated, monitored, and provided uh, on an on-demand basis every time an individual spins a faucet in their residence. But the fact of the matter is that a 21st century citizen expects that their community is going to use the same tools that they use in their daily life. And if I can order a item on Amazon, have it delivered within 72 hours, 
and use that item to fix plumbing in my own bathroom as a do-it-yourself project for a weekend, why should I as a citizen not expect my city government to be able to do the same type of thing for a 36-inch main that happens to be running along Main Street? So that uh, the water that I pay for that is transported through those pipes is actually accounted for at a higher level than it is today. Fun factoid, about somewhere between 68 to 79%, depending on the city, of the water that leaves a pumping station as clean water actually gets billed for on somebody's account. The rest of that is lost in unmonitored uh, leaks, um, the, the type of things that you guys do at Site 1001. Uh, but on a grand scale, using the entire water system that a city maintains. But if I use technology, if I use sensors to figure out where those leaks are, maybe I can get that percentage into the 90s. And if I do, I as a citizen have my water bill go down. Who doesn't want that? Yes, it challenges the engineers to do something different. And going back to where we started with this conversation, the mental block of some folks in cities not willing to evolve is probably the biggest challenge we have in, quote, uh, smart cities, in quote, space. So, yeah, that's that's my initial reaction to it. Yeah, what you just said actually ties back to something you mentioned earlier, that when city leaders learn to embrace data as a tool instead of something that is challenging their authority, then we'll be able to really move forward. I mean, it's like having Eric Cartman as your public works director. Respect my authority! Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope our audience will get that. Well, yeah, a lot of your audience is probably uh, the correct age group to get that. <laughs> yeah. South Park expands all all the ages. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm afraid that there's an awful lot of public works directors out there who don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they should. Might help them out. Uh, I, I, Yes, I agree. Fairly related. Who do you think is, I, I mean, I assume you're going to say Kansas City, but who, who do you think currently, in your expert opinion, is doing it the best? being a quote-unquote smart city, the best end, not having all of these mental roadblocks and actually taking advantage of all of the new technology that they can't take advantage of? Um, I don't know if there is one best. The really fun thing about this place, which is probably frustrating to our private sector partners, is that uh, there's a lot of cities doing different elements um, at an incredibly high level. Uh, the city of San Diego, I think, has figured out how to do uh, light control uh, better than anybody else. And uh, because of that, in Kansas City, we replicated their program. Hmm. Uh, similarly, uh, New York City has broken the code on uh, using kiosks as an elegant solution for both the ability to monetize a smart city without creating additional tax burdens through the sale of advertising on those particular pieces of infrastructure but then using that as a tool to deliver digital access through Wi-Fi at those uh, kiosk locations for about you know, 500 meters around it so that folks who lack connectivity at home can actually get the ability to link in with the rest of the world using that technology. And uh, we replicated that as well in Kansas City. And I know the firm that uh, we had in Kansas City is now 13 other communities and continuing to expand that as well as uh, other uh, kiosk companies that are that are being quite aggressive and playing a digital connectivity role as well as a smart city funding role. Um, I think Aurora, Illinois may be one of the more interesting cases 
and it's a mid-sized city at about 230,000 folks, and the second largest city in the state of Illinois, but not necessarily the place that one thinks about mm-hmm. in traveling to when going to the state of Illinois. But they are looking at a full-spectrum transition in the way they govern that city, with the smart city piece of that being a driver for it. And so I think attitudinally, they may be uh, the most advanced in the country. I think Kansas City certainly has its place on that list. Most likely, uh, that is in the use of data to drive city decision-making. I think certainly that has continued and survived beyond the James administration. And the team that is there uh, today, led by Kate Bender, um, is absolutely phenomenal. And I think they'll continue that work. All right. Aurora, Illinois. I'm there. One of the groups I work with is the Cities Today Institute. And it's essentially become like a little think tank in smart cities. And uh, we're hosting a big event there in mid-September. We're bringing about 25-ish city leaders together and some corporate types to uh, sort of start to engage these topics at a a very uh, operational uh, level. This concludes part one of this two-part podcast. Part two picks up right where we left off, so make sure you don't miss it by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and remember to like, follow, and share this and all of Site 101's content on your favorite social channels.